Thanks, Jason. Worship team. It's great to have the whole crew back up on stage leading. Thanks, Ken, for leading us in prayer. Um, it's good to see you today. Thanks. I know I say that every week. Um, I want you to know, first of all, I mean it. <laughs> and second of all, I want you to know what I mean by when I say it. Um, first of all, what I mean by that is this, that like everybody in the room that I've had a chance to at least speak to, um, we have a relationship of some sort. Maybe I met you for the first time and that's our relationship. Or some of you, like it goes all the way back to a t-shirt Robbie's wearing back in 04. We've like, we've been in the trenches of student ministry together and I know him that way. So when I say that it's good to see you, I mean it really is like good to see you um, as a friend, as a brother or sister. Um, but the, I, I, there's another layer to that that ties in with the message this morning when I say it's good to see you. And it's this idea that as individual followers of, of Jesus, we uniquely um, reflect who he is. And there's something even bigger than that when we collect ourselves together and declare things together. We come together as the body of Christ. And so we together with a louder proclamation and a more vivid image bear the image of God. And so when I say it's good to see you, I mean all those things. It's good to see you as a friend, but it's good to see you as the body of Christ coming together to reflect the radiant glory of who God is. And that's really going to be the essence of our message today. Um, we are going to finish the, um, the series on the parable of the lost coin. So we've been in this parable for three weeks. This is week four. We're going to land that parable today and be done with it and move forward. And so we've been in this parable for four weeks and really in Luke 15 for five weeks because right before that, Cam taught on the parable of the, uh, the lost sheep, okay? And so the good news is we're done with the parable of the lost coin today. The bad news is we're going to be back in Luke 15 next week uh, with Brian Lamb preaching on the prodigal son. And so um, we're not quite done with Luke 15, but we're going to finish the lost coin today. Um, we will take a few minutes to get there, okay? So if you want to mark Luke 15, you can do that, but we're going to go... Um, all throughout the Bible before we land in Luke 15 today to really wrap up the essence of what this parable is teaching. Okay, a little refresher. So week one, we saw God created everything to be very good. It's, when God says something is very good, it's the equivalent of being perfect, okay, without error, just the way it's supposed to function. This was creation in the beginning, okay? Then we had an event of sin where Adam and Eve participated in sin, and so what God created then became lost. So let's talk about that for just a minute as a refresher. God created uh, mankind to ultimately have the purpose of bearing his image. It was our ultimate purpose. God said, let us make man in our image, to bear our image. That's the essence of why we exist. Then he gave us uh, two functions for carrying this out. One of those was community. That the way that men and women would relate to one another and parents and children would relate to one another and, and neighbors would relate to one another would, would bear the image of God as a communal God. Like God didn't just invent relationship with man. God already understood what relationship was because he was in relationship with himself. This is why we needed to strive to understand the Trinity, the idea that, that God and Jesus were and are in relationship with one another. So relationship wasn't just something God came up with in creation. It was something that he placed on creation to reflect who he is. Okay, and then in addition to that, he gave man a mission to multiply and subdue the earth. And so what we saw at that moment of partaking in sin was this. First of all, the community function was fractured. All of a sudden, Adam's blaming Eve. Eve's blaming Adam, right? They're, they're naked and ashamed. Something's wrong in their relationship with one another and in the relationship with God. So this idea of being created in community was fractured. That's why today we still 
Week after week, we're meeting another family, another couple that's right, struggling with a marriage or struggling with a divorce, and parents and children aren't getting along, and we don't get along with our neighbor anymore, and it's all that we can do sometimes as a church to show up on Sunday and smile at one another. Why? Because humanity, this idea of living in community has been fractured. It's hard work to get along, right? So that community function was fractured. The mission was distorted. We saw that. They Man, and, and, and he began to organize himself and to carry out his own purposes and make a name for himself instead of a name for, for God. And so the mission was distorted. But ultimately, that essence of purpose was shattered. That when you looked at a human being, you were supposed to see God, right? And there were still fragments of it left, but it was like a shattered piece of glass. Completely distorted. So God then, from his position in the universe, looks down at humanity, sees He sees a distorted mission, he sees a fractured community, and he ultimately sees the shattered image. And so his solution is to send his son Jesus as the rescuer. So Jesus comes to earth, he lives it out for us perfectly. He dies on a cross, goes to the grave, and resurrects from the grave to ultimately do what? To reset what was broken, to say, listen, sin no longer has dominion over man. Sin will no longer define man's purpose, man's mission. It will no longer distort man's community. So Jesus rising from the dead is declaring to the world that he has ultimate say and he has victory over sin and death. And so through the essence, or through the event of the cross, the death, the burial, and the resurrection, God is resetting humanity. So last week we looked at God restoring these things that we no longer have to ask, what's my mission? Jesus says, hey, come here, come here. Here's your mission. Go do this. Here's your mission. Go make disciples of all nations. This is now your mission. We saw Jesus resetting the idea of community, right? From Acts 2, Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falling, speaking in tongues, all this crazy stuff. What was God doing? He was resetting and saying, come here, come here. This is how you're supposed to live. With one another, not against one another. Like, you're supposed to die, lay down your life for one another. You're supposed to love one another, serve one another. This is what community is supposed to look like. You're supposed to devote yourselves to each other to the point you're willing to go sell everything you have to meet somebody else's needs in your community. And so God was resetting all of that at the cross. Now today we're going to bring it all home as we see God resetting our purpose, the essence of why we were created. So I'm going to start with... um, just some few words from Rick Warren from a book called The Purpose Driven Life. And so when I say that, um, it invokes two things. For some people, it invokes excitement because you remember a time where you read the book and it had an impact on your life that was fruitful. For others of us who are in ministry, like it, it became this thing that was just way overdone and, and the purpose driven life became um, the porpoise driven knife. Yeah, it's just a, a funny comedy that came out that pastors circulated because it was just this overdone thing. Like it was a knife in our back. Like it, just, it was just way overdone, okay? But there were some beautiful things that came out of this book that I think um, we need to talk about today and some misunderstandings that came out of the book, okay? So when we heard Purpose Driven Life, here's what we heard ultimately as a church. God has a purpose for me, okay? Which is what Rick's teaching. But the way we heard it was this, that God has a purpose for me, and somehow it's different from the purpose God has for you. And that's what we heard when we heard Purpose Driven Life. So I'm looking for my purpose while you look for your purpose and you look for your purpose, and we'll spend 40 days figuring it out, and at the end we'll come together and we'll share, here's my purpose, oh, well, that's cool, well, here's my purpose. And that's, that's ultimately what spun out of this movement. Not at all what I think Rick was after in writing this book. So I still commend the book to you to read. Let me just read a few excerpts to illustrate why I think we, we missed it on some levels. 
first of all, I love this intro. He, he says this before you even get to chapter one. Um, today, the average lifespan is 25,550 days. So thank you for sharing one of those with us today. Now, that's how long you will live if you are typical. Don't you think it would be wise to use, um, to use your time to set aside 40 of those days to figure out what God wants you to do with the rest of them? Okay? So we heard that and we said, yeah, I want to figure that out. I want to have purpose in my life. But then if you begin in chapter 1, he begins the very first sentence in chapter 1 says, it's not about you. Spends the whole chapter explaining it's not about you finding out your unique individual purpose separate from somebody else. God has a singular purpose in creation. He goes on to say, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. Your peace of mind or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. And he goes on to say, you must begin with God, your creator. You exist only because God wills that you exist, and you were made by God and for God. Now what's beautiful is he comes back in chapter 7 and begins to define man's ultimate purpose in a way that I think is biblically accurate and plays into our series here. just want to read you the first part of chapter 7. It says this. Remember the first line, the first sentence in chapter 1? It's not about you. So here's how chapter 7 begins. It's all for him. You want to know what your, why you exist, your purpose? It's all for him. The ultimate goal of the universe is to show the glory of God. It is the reason for everything that exists, including you. God made it all for his glory. So what I believe was a God-designed tool for the church to, to use and learn and, and ultimately pull our purposes together and re- realize that it's singular, pointing at him, I think in some way became this spinoff into self-centeredness and this idea that I have a journey, you have a journey, I have a purpose, you have a purpose, and they're all different. As long as you don't bump into mine, right, we're good. Well, let's go to the scriptures. Today is going to be one of those days where I'm not going to talk a whole lot, I'm going to read a lot of scripture. Okay? I do this occasionally. And so my advice for you is this. We're going to throw verses up on the screen. If you're a person who likes to study the Word of God, I encourage you to have a pen or pencil ready and write down addresses so you can go back and sift through and meditate on and read through and study the things that we're going to talk about today. Because I'm going to move kind of fast. Okay? So there's the help for you. So let's talk for just a minute about this idea that my ultimate essence and purpose is for him. I'm going to read... Just a few scriptures for you from the New Testament. Starting in Romans, uh, chapter eleven, thirty-six 36 says this. From him being Jesus and through him and to him. Okay? From him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Okay? Pretty clear. For him, to him, through him. Any way Paul can say it, he wants you to understand. You exist for him. John uh, begins his gospel this way, talking about Jesus as the word. He says, in the beginning uh, was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, equating Jesus and God together. And then he goes on to say, he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So you can't extract your purpose apart from Christ. He's the one that like, created you. He gets to determine what your purpose is. In Colossians 1, this, this beautiful imagery Um, where Paul takes a few more words to say the same thing. In verse 15, chapter 1 in Colossians, he says, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So here we're back on this image-bearing idea. 
Okay, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created, here it comes, through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So we get this clear theological teaching from the Bible that you and I find our essence, our purpose in him, not in ourselves. Okay? And so we're beginning to see that my image-bearing then purpose has to do with bringing glory to his name. Now what's interesting is this. When you leave Genesis 1 and you read through the Bible, you're going to have a harder time finding that phrase image-bearer or image-bearing ever again in Scripture. It shows up in a few places in real subtle ways. So my question when I saw that was this. What happened? Did God take the purpose of man and water it up like a piece of paper, throw it in the trash and say, let's just do something different? Or is it there in a, maybe a more implied or even a more explicit way? What's interesting is if you will do a, um, a word study on the idea um, of God's glory, okay, what you're going to find is specifically referring to God's glory over 286 hits in the scripture about all things pointing to his glory. And so I read that and I go, no, there's no way God watered up and threw it in the trash. He spends the rest of the Bible explaining it, restoring it, fixing it, getting us ready to participate in it. I want to read for you just a few examples of where you find God's glory in, in the Bible. You find 16 references to God's glory just in Revelation. I'm just going to read a few from Revelation. Revelation 1 is the beginning of this revelation from God to us through John. He says, to him, this is verse 6, chapter 1, 6, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. This is what the revelation is going to do. It's going to reset the glory and put it where it belongs. Him. That's why we're saved. That's why we're redeemed. That's why we're fixed. To him belongs the glory. Revelation 15, uh, verse 4 says, Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? It's a rhetorical question. For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This idea that, that glory will be given to him through our worship. Verse 8 goes on to say, And the temple was filled, look at this, with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. Okay? It's not this idea that God's glory is on fire. It's the idea that God's glory is so thick in this scene that it looks like smoke. Think about our own lives. It's not this idea that, you know, here in little subtle ways I give glory to God and maybe I'll throw him a little shout out or I'll do a little something, something, go, oh, that's to the glory of God. But that glory, the glory of God would be so thick in our lives, like it would, it would be like smoke. Then we get this other imagery and further down in, uh, in Revelation 21 talking about the new Jerusalem and this new city that's, that's being created back perfectly restored. Well, I love this, like, there's no, there's no need for a son anymore. Chapter 21, look at this, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. Why? For the glory of God gives it light. And the lamb being Jesus is its lamp. This idea that in eternity there will be light, but there will be no need for a sun. Why? Because God's glory will be bright enough to illuminate anything and everything. So God's glory is, is a big deal in creation. 
It's the thing he's resetting and restoring for all eternity. Now let's talk for just a minute about what it means to bear an image and then we're going to talk about um, what worship has to do with this, okay, and why worship ultimately is our purpose. So I want to talk through a few illustrations on image bearing. So when we think about image bearing, I've got some props back here I'm going to pull up. Um, we, we want to think in two terms, we want two, two, two different ways. We want to think outwardly, okay? So like if my son bears my image outwardly, you, you're able to look at him and say he's his father's son, either by his, his actions or his tone of voice, you know, how he does things, maybe even in his physical features, right? There's an outward appearance. But if you spend time with my son, if he's going to bear my image, you're going to see me in his motives, in his character, right? In the way he loves, he will reflect my love. In the way he treats people, he'll begin to reflect the way I treat people. So it's an outward and inward image bearing, okay? So I've got a few props I want to share with you that, that hopefully will help. All right, um, this is a picture of, uh, of Hudson and I, and I know there's a glare in here, so I'll, I'll bring it up to the front, and then I'll, I'll set it up. Um, so this is, this is a picture of, of Hudson and I. It's before Cal was born. Can everybody see that? See what's in it? Okay. And so in this picture, something like an activity was captured, right? And, and what was that activity? Reading the Bible. Now, we, we actually posed for this, okay? So this wasn't a candid moment, but, but there are a few like this in our household. But ultimately, this captures an outward expression of activity, okay? So a picture can be an image bearer. It's a still shot that captures something that's going on, and it gives you an idea of, right, what, who that person is and what they're doing. You see this, and you go, oh, it looks like... Jason loves his son and likes to read the Bible with him, okay? So there's one example of image bearing through a picture. There's a second version, and I'm going to pull up a, uh, a brand new computer monitor that we just bought. Oh, gosh, just order this one. Um, can you believe, like, computers used to be this big? Oh, like, I know, high school students are like, what is that? It's a computer, and it's just part of it. Like, it comes with attachments and a big thing. And, but anyway, um, so this is a monitor. And so I want to talk about how this could be a, a version of an image bearer, but an internal version, okay? See, the monitor has no motives in and of itself. What does it do? It's connected to a source. And it begins to, over time, reflect the motives of whatever the source is. If the source wants it to play a video, it plays a video, right? If the source wants it to display text, it displays text, color, color. But all of that comes from an inward Source, And so there's an idea there that you and I as image bearers then are reflecting the outer image of who God is and our actions, our activity, that when somebody sees you love somebody, they see an image, right? But then also this idea of motives that when they, when they see you love or they see compassion, they go, you're not, just try, you're not just trying to act like God, right? There's an inner motive coming out that people would see his compassion and your compassion. Okay, so there's two examples of ways we can bear images. I want to share with you the one I've been referring to in this series and just quite frankly, the one that I think that I like the most, and it's this one. Okay? Everybody have one of these? It's, it's the technology that never gets outdated. Right? And so uh, ho hopefully you have one of these or a spouse who helps you get ready. Um, but this is, a, this is an important tool we use in our house and our lives every day, some of us multiple times a day. Right? You have to check the, the face and the hair and the paint, make sure it's all in place. Right? So when you think in terms of image bearer, this is the reason I like this one best. I think this most accurately represents what the Bible's teaching. First of all, in order for this to bear my image, which way does it have to be facing? It has to be facing me. You know, this is what the Bible teaches is repentance. You're walking away from God, facing away from him, and it's a, literally a turning around and begin walking towards God. 
And the reason why I like this is because in order for this to bear my image, it, okay, and I'm a cheap version of God, <laughs> but if I'm God and it's going to bear my image, right, it has to be in relationship with me. It has to face me. It's this idea of, of Moses coming down from the mountain, and he's been in the image and the presence of God, and you can see it radiating off. It's like he looks sunburned. He's been in the presence of God. And so I like this one because it's this idea that the, 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 more, the more straight on and the more focused I am on God, the better I am as an image bearer of who God is. And so when we think of terms of bearing God's image, you can think of any of these three. Um, the, per, the point's kind of the same in all of them, that ultimately we are reflecting the inner and the outer of who God is to the rest of the world, okay? So now let's talk for just a minute. The other reason I like this one is because it's real life. If God's not in front of it, right, it's not just a still shot. It's like living and active and moment by moment. So that's the other reason I like that one. So we come back to the scripture then and we say, okay, this is what it kind of looks like to bear an image of something or someone else. I want to read Hebrews 1.3 to you real quick. Hebrews talks about how Jesus is an image bearer of God. Okay, so Hebrews 1.3, just the, just the first part of this verse says, he, being Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. There's the first part. Okay, so Jesus is, a, is the perfect image bearer of who God is. It begins in his radiant expression of glory of who God is. But then it goes on to say, and the exact imprint of his nature. So when we talk about you and I being created to bring him glory, to bear his image, this is what we're talking about. So when we talk about as Christians, we're becoming Christ-like, conformed to his image, we're not just talking about going through the motions and doing what he did. Right? We're talking about becoming the exact imprint of who Jesus is. And that's what it means to bear the image. Okay? So let's have another conversation. This will kind of pull together. In church life, we've gotten really good at, at defining what worship is not. Okay? And uh, I've been around church ministry, I don't know, 18, 20 years. And I've heard over and over again, worship is not, worship is not, worship is not just music, okay? Worship is not just an order of service. It's not just, and so I've, I've heard a lot of things or definitions of what worship is not, but what I want to do is I want to tell you why we call what we do here on Sundays worship, okay? So we talk about that. You can worship through serving your neighbor. You can worship through giving. You can worship through, and you just go on and on and on. Well, that's true. You can bear God's image in giving. You can bear God's image in serving. You can bear God's image in these activities. Let me explain to you why I think what we do here um, owns the title of worship service in a God-given biblical way. So we, we read a few passages out of the 286 times it shows up on how all things created to bear the image and give God glory. Let me read a few more verses for you, and I want you to look for a pattern in how we bear glory, okay? How we bear glory to God or image bear this to God. I'm going to start in First Chronicles. These are all of the Old Testament. First Chronicles 16, 24 says this, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, okay? Just listen for a pattern. Psalm 19, 1 says, the heavens Declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 96.3. 
Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Just two from Isaiah. Isaiah 42, 12 says, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. And then later on in Isaiah 66, 19, he comes back to that idea and says this, I will set a sign among them. He's actually referring forward to Jesus. I will set a sign among them. And from them, I will send survivors to the nations. Does it sound familiar what he's going to do through Jesus? I'm going to send survivors to the nations too. Tarshish, to Pool, to Lud, who draw the bow, to, to Baal and Javan, to the coastlands far away. Here it is. That have not heard my fame or seen what? My glory. So God is equating his glory to his fame. The more famous we make him, the more we glorify who he is. Are you catching on? Okay. And then if you read the last verse, it says this, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Did you catch on to the pattern? While God's glory can be reflected in subtle ways throughout our lives, through activities and actions, humility, serving, love, compassion, it is most vividly, accurately, and explicitly expressed in our declarations. When we articulate it, when we say it together, God is most explicitly and tangibly and accurately glorified. We can't just act like God. We must declare who he is. Now, think about that for just a minute. When it comes to what we do in here then, um, this is how I, how I view Sunday mornings in the grand scheme of eternity, Okay. Um, I see it like a reverse echo. Okay, bear with me for just a minute. You know what an echo does, right? It's a loud noise, boom, and then it begins to repeat. But as it gets further and further away from the source, it gets more and more vague, quieter, until it just distorts and rolls off. What I think we do here on earth, on Sunday in, Sunday out, even in the small little subtle ways in our lives, it's like a reverse echo. And the closer we get to eternity, the more accurate and the more loud it becomes. And here's why I think that. When you get to Revelation and you begin to read and study what our part is in eternity, what you're going to see is this, that really what we're there to do is to declare his glory. When you look at even like the elders, the 24 elders we're going to read in just a minute, like they're there to bow down and declare how good God is. When you see creation involved in in Revelation in, in heaven and eternity, creation is there to declare how good he is. And it's it's, 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 um, it's revealed in our individual lives day by day. You can be part of that tomorrow morning on your journey to work, okay? In so many different ways. Having an individual moment with God in worship, um, your quiet time, you can have it by sharing the gospel with somebody who you work with or somebody you see. You can do a random act of kindness for somebody as long as you're connected to the source and you're trying to reveal God's compassion. All those are valid, But there is not a point in our lives where we more explicitly, more accurately, more vividly, and more loudly proclaim who he is than when the saints gather together to declare who God is. And what we do here on Sundays, I believe, right, is becoming louder and louder and louder and more accurate and more accurate. It's like a reverse echo, right, getting us prepared for our eternal purpose to worship God, to declare who he is, to bring him glory. God is restoring what was shattered. And Paul says, right now here on earth, I just kind of see in part 
and I just kind of know in part, but on that day, guess what? I'll be able to see fully. What's he talking about? I'll be able to see who God is fully. And at that point, that's when I will know fully. It's like this reverse echo getting more and more clear. It should be happening in your life individually. Do you know that? And when you first become a Christian, like when you first realize, you know what? Uh, the reason my life is, has no purpose or essence and seems to be not working out is because I keep trying to reflect myself. And so you believe in Christ and you turn to God. What happens at that moment is you're filled with joy. We're going to see that in just a second. This need to worship, this need to explain. But as you grow in Christ, your, your song is supposed to become louder and louder and louder as your heart prepares for eternal purpose. Let's look at Luke 15 together for just a minute. You're going to see this in all three of the parables. Starting with the parable of the lost sheep, this was the one that Cam taught. This starts in verse one. We're just gonna skip down to six. What I want you to see is what happens when what was lost is found, okay? Just pay attention. Here we go. Verse six. So the, the sheep has been found, okay? And so when he comes home, the shepherd comes home with the sheep. Look at what he does. He calls his friends and neighbors together, right? He calls them together, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost, Okay? So he's not just calling off the search party, and he's not just transferring information to his neighbors. He's, at, he's inviting them into worship. He's saying, come rejoice with me. What was lost has been found. Look in the parable of the lost coin. This is the one that we're on right now. Verse 9, and when she finds it, look what she does. She calls together her friends and neighbors. She collects the people together. And says what? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So, when you as an individual person come to the point in your life where you turn to God, you say, I'm done. I'm done living for me. I'm done trying to reflect myself, reflect my own glory. I'm ready to turn to you and live for a greater purpose. When you turn to him as one individual person, the angels in heaven worship. They proclaim loudly. And guess what happens in eternity? We join them in their song. We go unto the prodigal son, right? When he gets, when he comes home, what does the father do? Call off the search party? No, he calls everybody together to celebrate, to rejoice, to worship. I'll save some of that for Brian for next week. Okay, so. We have this ultimate purpose being reset, restored in our individual lives. Let me talk to you for just a minute specifically about how this happens. So um, if you go to the book of Romans, like if you're interested in theological studies and, and why things happen the way they happen and kind of the heart motives of God, Ro uh, Paul does a really good job, I think, in Romans. Um, it's pretty thick, so go slow. Maybe even get like commentary or a study Bible with you and take your time and work through it. But, but Paul does a lot of overview and, and theological explanation behind things in Romans. So chapter 1, it's no mistake that Paul starts off here in this idea of what has been lost. This image bearing has been shattered. This community um, uh, function has been fractured. And mission has been distorted. And so he describes it this way in Romans chapter 1. Starting in verse 21, he's, he says, for although they, he's talking, to man, he's talking about mankind. He's describing the, the condition of man without a hero. So here's what he says. 
For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Okay? They weren't bearing his image. They weren't glorifying. They weren't worshiping. But they became, look at this. This is the, the mirror turned away. This is what happens when the mirror turns away. They become futile in their thinking. It's a real nice way of saying they just became dumb. And their foolish hearts were darkened. It's this idea that there was no hope within them. It was darkness and evil and wickedness dwelled inside of them just by turning away from God. Then look at what he says, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and they exchanged, this is the turning, the glory of the immortal God for what? Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So this was man created in the garden, originally focused on God, bearing his image. When you looked at Adam, you saw God. When you looked at Adam and Eve interacting, you saw God. And you had an image of what community was supposed to look like. And then through sin, they turned away from him. And so their, became, their thinking became dumb, futile, worthless, without value. And their hearts became Darken, and here's what happened. They began to reflect images of things around them, birds and animals and anything they could make up. You study like anthropology and, and, and history and any tribe or nation or, right, or group of people, they create images to worship. It's Buddha, it's a tree, it's a whatever. This is what Paul's saying here. Turned away from God and began to try to find other things to reflect and bear the image of. Paul calls it dumb and dark. Now, God's restoring that. So we get two chapters later in Romans 3.23, and this is where Paul talks about it. He says, for all have sinned. So it's not just Adam and Eve. Don't you just go blame them for this. We all did it. All have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God, our created purpose to bear his image. So like, like I'm starting to understand sin is a bigger deal, personally. Like, it was a big deal when I realized that it caused Jesus to go to a cross. I saw Passion of the Christ, and I went, whoa, my sin was a big deal. But now I'm seeing it as an even bigger deal. In every event of sin in my life before Jesus comes to the cross, every event, right, I am I'm exchanging God's glory for something else, primarily myself, primarily myself, which is interesting. What a futile what a futile experiment. It's like that image trying to bear itself. Think about that. When you live your life for your own purposes, you don't accomplish them. You accomplish something. But no image can bear its own, no, no, can bear its own image. It's a futile engagement. Worthless, dumb. But here's the rest part of that. For all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are, I love the and, God's fixing it. He's resetting things and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Paul's saying God is resetting the whole thing. Through every sin, right, God's glory was exchanged for the glory of other junk. But through what God did in Jesus and what he's doing in your life through Jesus, he's resetting the whole thing. Paul explains it in um, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18 like this. Imagery. Paul's talking about the same thing. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, it's how Paul's describing now that we turned and we're looking at God, we can see him, the veil has been removed. So we all, with unveiled face, beholding what? The glory of God. So it's not like there was a curtain that kept us from seeing God. The curtain was our back, 
right? And so now we all, with unveiled face, now we're looking at him. And we're beholding the glory of the Lord. Look at this. And are being transformed into the same image. Same image as what? Same image as Jesus. And look how it happens. From one degree of glory to another. Some translations say from glory to glory. So in my life, God's shaping me. He uses the word transforms. It's like clay. He's pressing. He's shaping. He's cutting pieces off into the image he wants me to be, right? And so every time he does that, he's restoring his glory a little bit more. You see how it's a reverse echo? Getting bigger and bigger and more accurate and more accurate as we move forward. Love this. From one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Okay. So here's where I want to end today. Um, First of all, I want to say to you, if you are a person who has been um, just kind of checking out Christianity and who God is, and so today you're hearing, whoa, like, I have an ultimate purpose in life. Like, I was actually created by a creator to do something. Yes, that's good news. And here's the better news. Everything in your life that has prevented you from doing that so far, God has an answer for. He has a reset button. It's found in Jesus on the cross. It's why we still wear it around our necks and throw it up on the screen. It's why we still make a big deal about the cross because that's God's reset button to restore things. And he wants to do that in your life. So today, here's what that means for you. If you're ready for that, it's simply just turning to God and believing. Turning away from yourself and this journey you're on and all the things and sin is included and turning to God and saying, I believe on you. And the moment you do that, Jesus cleanses you from all unrighteousness. He sets, he sets you free from this bondage to this lifeless, right, futile journey. He sets you free from that in a moment. And then you join the saints in their song. Man, praise God. Here's what I want to do. I want to end today um, reading something kind of over us from Revelation 5. And what I want you to hear is this. I want you to look and see. Notice what the elders, okay? We've got elders in our church. Notice what the spiritual leaders are doing in eternity, okay? They're not up front conducting services, all right? There's no point where God's like, hey, what are we preaching today? Uh, grace, awesome. Jason has a sermon from August 2012. Let's, let's get him up here to preach, all right? That's not my eternal purpose, My eternal purpose is to decrease, to fall on my face, and to join the saints in their song. So notice what the elders are doing here, okay? I want you to also notice what the angels are doing. Notice what all creation is doing. We sing the same song. Our eternal purpose is to to declare the glory of God. That was our created intention and purpose. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. I'm going to pray over us, and then um, we'll turn it over to do some more singing. Let's, let's pray together. And as you bow your head, maybe, and close your eyes just to get focused and consider what we've heard today. As, I, as I'm praying, um, what I want you to be, to be doing is thinking about what maybe you need to pray. Okay? So as I'm talking to God, I want you to be thinking about what maybe how you'll finish the conversation. I'm just going to start it, and you get to finish it. So maybe today is the day for the first time you turn to God and you say, God, I'm ready for you to finish the story in me. I'm ready to turn to you. 
I'm ready to quit pursuing myself. I'm ready to receive this ultimate purpose, this reset in life, and begin living in community, begin living with a mission, begin living with a purpose. Okay, you can do that in your own words, in your own heart, just by finishing this prayer. Maybe some of us would say, you know what, maybe today for the first time or for the hundredth time, God has reminded me that I'm not supposed to be living for myself, but I'm supposed to be living this life of confirmation, of transformation, looking more and more like Jesus every day. And then what I want us to do in a minute is I want us to to sing the song together. I want us to, to participate in this eternal worship of God by declaring with all that we have, all that he is. So much more than just a choir singing or a band making music. These are the, this is the moment where the saints come together to declare with one voice to the nations who our one God is. So Father, now we bow in gratitude and humility and thanks. I thank you, God, that as I've grown to know you year after year, the box I put you in on day one has not been big enough, that every time you reveal yourself to me, God, I have to go find a bigger box. And and, and so, God, this morning, you're expanding our view of who you are in so many ways, telling us just get rid of the box. I have no boundaries. I have no beginning. I have no end. There is no end to my purpose. There is no end to my character. And so, God, would you continue the process of restoring your image in us this morning, even as we sing, God, would you begin to stir the echoes of eternity?